Geopolitics and Empire welcomes back Johnny V, Johnny Vedmore, investigative journalist and musician from Wales. He writes for a number of outlets, including Whitney Webb's Unlimited Hangout, for which he just wrote a sequel to his Klaus Schwab piece. This one is titled Dr. Klaus Schwab or How the CFR Taught Me to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. How's life, Johnny? Yeah, oh, it's really good. It's really good. Um, things are livening, livening up, um, especially in my life, because I mean, I spent uh, the first part of my journalistic career being s censored constantly and find it hard to actually break through. I, I mean, once you when you I, I can I, I couldn't cover loads of different things and and everybody's like, yeah, it's normal because I'm not getting out to many people. And now this is changing a lot. So it's really nice to be able to uh, come up with something which is really special for me, because um, I mean, I, I, I spent the last year, as as we talked about before, in uh, uh, the recent uh, podcast we we did, um, I, I did a lot of research on the early history of Klaus Schwab. I wrote Schwab Family Values. Um, it's held up to the test of time. Every time I get new information still coming in, um, I'm I'm still in all these these rumors coming into me. Um, documents being sent to me uh, saying that basically that the Americans knew about you Eugen Schwab, so Klaus Schwab's father and his uh, dealings with Escher Weiss being the manager of. Uh, Nazi model company that was helping with the atomic bomb project for the the Nazis. So so there's uh, other other things that keep holding up. Um, nothing's got a hole in yet. So I'm really happy when you write an article and everybody reads it and has a look into it. You're always just oh my god, what what did I miss? But I I do go through a really um, vigorous process, and I didn't want to, you know. There's so much uh, interest. You could pick and choose what you write about. In Schwab's life, there's so many points in history where it's like, wow, he was involved in that too, and oh, he was involved in that too, and it just goes on and on. So, so you know, you could just pick and choose, but I, I, I think that my methodology in investigating has always been the same. I take it to extremes as as people I go to family histories, but um, I do think chronological, um, a contextual understanding of someone's entire lifespan and then all of the other people's entire lifespan and then how they, 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 you have to, um, if you're going to prove there's links with people and you, it's not only about the links at the time of so-and-so met so-and-so at this club, you don't know who they were at that time. You don't know what was going on in the world, what their priorities were, because all of these men, their priorities changed as the agenda changed as well, but also personally, their priorities changed because remember the, these, the, all of these, uh, darker actors that we'll speak about, um, who work for these agencies who and and these institutions and foundations etc um that that work the real gears of government um they, they they are all they're all doing their stuff out in the open we can see them out in the open they're publishing in their own journals they 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 show their allegiances they wear their hearts on their sleeves you could say um they know that there's an ideology behind it and they know it very well because a lot of these guys are intellectuals you know and this is one of the really interesting things that i think I've discovered during all my research is that um, the reason why you always find this intelligence link between universities uh, and intelligence agencies, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because that's where intellectuals are and intelligence is all about intellectuals. It's all about looking at things in a different way. And, and it's the same with um, journalism, but 
in the same way people can make things really complicated. So with this, I had got to a point where it was like the formation of the World Economic Forum in the Schwab Family Values piece. And I, obviously that's an important piece to get to. But over the next year, I tried to find what was going to be the part, what was going to be. And a lot of that is like just general research. You're going through um, documents, newspapers, uh, searching for names, certain names, certain uh, collections of words. Um, and, and you know, I did a lot of this and there was a lot of different things that come up during my Schwab research, which will come up later in, in future articles. But there was nothing that really like, you know, I couldn't find anything that made sense until I said, okay, chronologically, I've just got to go through exactly who he would have interacted at those times, where he was. And what I noticed very much about Schwab now, which I, I didn't have a clue at the start, he tells you so much. And I've said this before to people, you know, he tells you so much in what he says. He says a little sentence and it actually gives you uh, 15 different clues. And it, it, it really is that the guy has, to equivocate or come up with some sort of like um, reason why he did something when he did something dodgy, but he's got to do it publicly and he shouldn't even be saying it, but you can almost tell when he rambles a little bit afterwards, he shouldn't have said the first thing. So like when he's talking about Vladimir Putin being one of the young global leaders, he knows he shouldn't say it and you hear him mumble afterwards and go on. Well, uh, there is something interesting about that just on, on a point that there was three KGB agents apparently chosen in 1991 as a uh, Russia's foremost patriots, and that was the program in Russia. So there was an alternative program. So he wasn't officially a world economic young global leader, or at the time, what it was called was um, uh, uh, global leaders or whatever, global leaders for the world, or um, whatever they originally called it. There, there was another project. Anyway, that's on another side. I just thought I'd uh, throw that in for a bit of knowledge. Um, so I, I was really like, let's look at who was there, who taught him, what he did, and what he said about his time in university. And that's really important. And, he, you know, it keeps coming around. It kept coming up, international seminar, international seminar, international seminar, international seminar. It came up in about five different places, this idea of the international seminar. And then he said something really interesting. One article, he says something along, or one, one interview, he says something along the lines of, um, I went to Harvard, but I didn't study any courses and that 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 just what what do you mean you go to harvard and you don't uh, study any courses what do you mean i just sat in on certain seminars and certain lectures okay that's interesting you chose so you're an intellectual and you're being invited to harvard but you guy gets qualifications from harvard and he's like he says in his history he graduates from harvard but you don't graduate from just going and sitting in on seminars that's that's not i i my understanding of universities uh now and then it doesn't seem to make any sense so you know holes like that in what schwab says makes you think oh wait there's something there i can't quite work out well when you hear that you just gotta literally tear it apart um, and the international seminar he went to is a really, really, really interesting thing because um, at the time um, it, it was made by a guy um, called or invented created by a guy called William uh, Yandel Elliott, who's one of the most interesting people who no one knows about in um, history of American politics, advisor um, to six different US presidents, um, chooser of a, a lot of the big leaders, um, one of the ones who was in the CFR, of course, Council of Foreign Relations, um, and would lift Henry Kissinger up in many um, anyway. ways. So he, he started, he founded this 
course, this international seminar, um, which when you actually hear about, when you hear like little hints and, and tips of what was going on, it was the World Economic Forum Young Global Leader version 1.0. It was about training leaders. So it's not only Schwab that came from this seminar. There's multiple, including Pierre Trudeau, who came from this seminar. And there's evidence I found recently that points to uh, Pierre Trudeau being directly related to William um, uh, Yandel Elliott as well. So, I mean, that that's quite like significant. And there's also an Israeli prime minister, I believe, who was there. Um, uh, there's going to be a few. Because this was obviously a big thing and it ran for a fair few years, 1961 to 1966. And in 1967, they wrote the report, a guy called Dorman, who was um, uh, commissioned to write a report by the dean of the arts and science um, uh, faculties there, uh, wrote a report that showed uh, um, a load of courses had been funded uh, through a conduit, but a known conduit of the CIA. And one of those courses that got funded, 146000 dollars which you can imagine in the 60s is probably quite a lot of money um was the international seminar created by william yandel elliott and whose executive director was henry kissinger and where schwab would be go would go and would be recruiting and what's interesting about this international seminar as well is it was in the summer so it was classed as a summer school so yeah, I, I would suggest that there might be like a lot of programs that ran in, and, and this is again, it may seem like a leap, but this is how investigations work. And this is how, like, when I'm talking about it, I'm still thinking about this process now, but I would, I would think that a lot of the summer programs in Yale and Harvard around the same time probably had similar courses, but were aimed at different areas. So this was aimed at creating a leader. Um, and it's really important to understand who was involved and who Henry Kissinger is. And a lot of your audience may already know um, a, a brief history of Henry Kissinger and not know so much about the other two characters who would help this young Klaus Schwab and would be introduced through Henry Kissinger meeting Klaus Schwab at the international seminar while he was a guy for Europe and they were just about to concentrate fully on Europe because uh, Henry Kissinger had had in the um I wrote within this piece I wrote it as in really free uh, biographies to show how these all started off, what they were all focused on and how they all coalesced around the same time during this period, they were recruiting Schwab and how they would go on to be completely focused on Europe in the late sixties and would go and help Schwab to make the uh, world economic forum, which was called the European management symposium, then um, a success, make it real. Uh, and, and these were, these were grandees. So this was Kissinger organized in 1966. There was, um, a, a, like a panel put together, a 22 man panel, uh, loads of guys from the council on foreign relations and other people and standard oil people and stuff like Schilling. Um, uh, it, it, really big pe people led by Kissinger. And it was about re reimagining how to create Europe post this, like uh, now we're at a post-war point. Uh, period and we've done a lot of research and the nuclear deterrence idea that we've been living under the paradigm we've been living under for 17 years that we've created ourselves kissinger and some of his allies um is about to disappear or it, we've worked out that it's not as we first thought it was going to be um but it has a certain element of power 
in people thinking they're about to have a bomb destroy their entire city. Um, that gives people a certain amount of power to give away their consent. And they wanted to keep that dynamic for as long as possible, it seems. So I, I, I'll explain to people the other two people who are involved. Because like I say, I explained it in a, a Bio, uh, biography, a sense of. Yeah, I, l- 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 I'm, l- l- I'm just not a add, wordy person. Yeah. <laughs> a message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID 1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30 minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. <laughs> yeah, and it's great the way the way you you approach it. I, I it's probably one of the ways I would approach it uh, as well if I were writing about this. And I would just add just just when I started reading the summary of your article, things started to immediately click uh, for me uh, because in your summary you basically state that the World Economic Forum was born out of this CIA-funded Kissinger-directed Harvard program. It always goes back to the CIA, it seems, and this really makes sense because if we look back, we see how big tech was funded by the CIA basically and the NSA and the Pentagon DARPA. We've had CIA involved in founding Bilderberg, right? We've had Rockefeller, Mm -hmm. Brzezinski and Kissinger involved in trilateral. So it really, truly would make sense that the same formula then is applied to the World Economic Forum. So where, as you outline how the World Economic Forum comes out of this same globalist military intelligence academic think tank uh, apparatus, which is revolving around the same actors, right? CIA, Pentagon, uh, um, you know, CFR, well, British Royal Institute and CFR. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that the CIA and the U.S. State Department were the majority funders and donors of the European Union uh, globalist Mm -hmm. project. This is well documented. So the EU is an American globalist project. And so, again, that also makes sense that if the Washington CFR, you know, all these elites funded the EU project, then they would do the same with the WEF. Um, and so it all goes back to the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable Royal Institute, CFR and yeah. CIA. So. Well, at the time they're setting up the World Economic Forum, at the same time, Nixon and Kissinger are focusing on Europe, making it all the year of Europe and um, saying they're going to put all of their economic weight and their um, political power behind the EEC and strengthening it because it had become a competing enough market. And in we, we got to remember, for people who don't understand, their ideology 
technology isn't um, competitive in the sense that um, Europe and America are separate entities. They they see them, their overall arching ideology says we're going to be the same thing one day. That's how we're going to take over the world. Because, um, and this is something that I explained to people and I don't think they really understand, but damn man, I, I, I started playing a game called Axis and Allies when I must have been eight years old um, with my dad. My, my dad, me and my dad, we didn't get on on loads of things. Uh, but but when it came down to war games, uh, we were well into that. And uh, by the time I was like 12, I was beating all of his mates on the war games because it was basic principles when you're, you're dealing with risk or access and allies or just world geopolitics. Uh, if you have control of this uh, continent and this continent, gained over for everybody else. That's, you know, it's a, there's a power um, and what they defined in the twenties was this, like this Rhodesian ideal was defined of like this three main power blocks of the Americas and Anglo power block, America, Britain, and etc. You know the, the normal, usual, uh, the the German or the European Nazi Germany or whatever power block, and then along the side you've got the Russian power block, which would be Russia and China. Now, but you know, for 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 people to when you simplify it to that, the only conclusion when you run simple simulations for these people who run really complicated simulations it'll come up with the same conclusion that if you own two or three you own the most that's it if you own two or three those are the three main power blocks they they're not really going to change it's not like africa is going to come back and become a superpower uh, anytime uh, in the foreseeable future and they know this and they that's part of the reason why they keep africa down and keep africa corrupt because these guys know that they got if as long as they keep those free then the uh european american dynasty will continue onwards and that's what they were looking forward to creating because remember a lot of the people who are creating this and mapping this out like kissinger kissinger left uh, uh germany what in 1938 um with his family and settled and would be within four or five years back in the war um uh fighting in the battle of the bulge alongside bloody fritz kramer <laughs> and being brought up to be this 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 legend of henry kissinger i mean henry kissinger what going forward let let me um explain to people that um when Henry Kissinger uh, left Harvard when he was about, uh, it was about 1950, 1951. Um, 1950, he tried to become an FBI spy before he graduated. 1951, uh, he wants to um, become a, pref- a professor at Harvard. And George Bundy, who's one of the, the his tutors and another CFR, one of the uh, Bundy brothers, George Bundy, what a name. Um, he says, oh no, you should go to the CFR. And then he starts doing working groups on nuclear weapons. So, for people who aren't in the know, um, Kissinger placed himself in an area where he would be the main um, uh, a go-to guy expert on uh, the mixture between thermonuclear war and foreign policy, which is basically what his first paper was uh, called that came out in like about 56 to 58, somewhere around there, where basically that put him on the map as being one of the guys. Now, the other guy who... Was helped Schwab to form the World Economic Forum. Another one of the guys was also involved in thermonuclear war um, disaster planning scenarios, etc., mapping them out. And this guy, uh, 
I think he's one of the most interesting people in the whole of history. And um, uh, he's known as the real Dr. Strangelove. His name is Herman Kahn, a big, massive, fat guy who's um, who is uh, from the, I, I believe he's from the Bronx, uh, somewhere like that. He's from that, that around there, New Jersey, New York area. And an extremely interesting guy. And he was part of the Hudson Institute. Um, and they were a disaster. They were doing all of the, the nuclear deterrence, disaster planning stuff, all through the, like, the real start of the Cold War. So they were doing really interesting stuff. And he was apparently given the freedom to and space to think outside the box, you know, think unethically or immorally, um, to, to understand what the other side would do in um, uh, if a bomb was, if a nuclear bomb was launched or if any series of events happened so really it was like a, a breakdown what 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 their main research was the 50s was understanding nuclear deterrence was understanding the simplicity of the first just um having a nuke stops the other person firing a nuke that's nuclear deterrence there uh, the basics of it um and then other things you can do uh, to stop the effects afterwards that come from that deterrence because it's going to be effects and then other things that would make any of those things that the other side would do unprofitable so it becomes a real complex mess you know it goes from the simply the, the, the first part of this nuclear deterrence idea that the Hudson Institute and, and Khan were coming out with was oh well we got to have um uh bombs to uh stop them at, uh, hitting us because we've done the, the planning what it shows is that if we launch like five bombs each uh, then this many people die in this country this many people die in this country and we're like all right well we can probably do about two per country but then we wouldn't be able to go any further i don't think we want to go further than that so we're probably not going to do it at all and you know they, they'd, they'd gone through all of these things and what would happen if and they kind of wrote it off by the late 60s they would completely write it off really in 1960 and 1960 Herman Kahn would come out of his Hudson uh, Institute box a lot more and he would uh, publish on thermonuclear war and that would in three, four years, uh, 1964, Stanley Kubrick would release uh, Dr. Strangelove, which um, everybody then called in real Dr. Strangelove and he was that crazy at times, you know, that, that over the top. But I think Dr. Strangelove was a merger between Kissinger and Kahn, to be perfectly honest. I think those were the two thermonuclear um, uh, experts of the time who were known everywhere. And so that people kind of like related to that. And I think Kubrick just merged the two characters and then probably added a little bit of Fritz Kramer with a monocle and the, ah, because that's what Fritz Kramer was like. He was a, a crazy German. So, I mean, what Stanley Kubrick did is mold it. And even Herman Kahn said, I know Stanley Kubrick. He's a friend of mine. And I don't know. He said it wasn't me. He's supposed to be me. Uh, my wife says if he, it was supposed to be me, then, and he's over 200 pounds, I'll be very upset. And like, you know, it makes a joke out of it, et cetera. But, you know, th that's really disturbing in itself. Oh, he's a friend of mine. It's like, yeah, a little bubble. But I think they used the media in that sense, Dr. Strangelove, to kind of start calming down the fears, to say, look at the irrational, uh, irration, uh, rationality that comes from um, this firm, potential thermonuclear war. If you watch Dr. Strangelove, like a lot of it is set, is set on an army base, uh, like some of it, quite a, a large amount of it. It's on an army base with some guys basically having nervous breakdowns in rooms and having really strange, while there's loads of fighting going outside. And basically they're fighting each other 
and no one knows who's fighting who. And, and that's the whole point. It, once you get to a certain point, no one wants to press the button because there's just too many unknowns. And every intelligence service, every military, they work on knowns. They don't work on the unknowns because that's then, you know, then you're entering into real dangerous territories. You've got to know the next step. Um, so nuclear deterrence, it was just so many that they, they, that by the time it got to to the mid 60s they had decided khan and kissinger and other experts had all decided listen we we um don't think there's going to be any uh launch unless it was um something evil uh some sabotage or some accident um barring that we don't think anybody's going to dare push the button so now we're at the next two stages of how to manage the politics surrounding the fact we have thermonuclear weapons and we could destroy each other anytime and how to keep that alive so we can use it and manipulate it as much as possible and really i think it, it's at this point where they say okay so why are we using and manipulating it what is the reason and the purpose that we are going to scare people with this? We got this wonderful tool. What can we use it for? Now, the agenda was already to make uh, Europe and America closer. And of course, the, I, I think I, I, I think the so uh, the, the Churchill and Stalin uh, bit of scribbling on a napkin to decide how things were broken up was kind of to create that as well, so that there would be a point where there could be negotiations backwards and forwards afterwards and instability and the fear of of potential war anytime because that was a useful tool at the time they could see it was a visible tool to them that was actually currently happening so people don't realize until it's currently happening that it's just a tool that they adopt because it's normal it's become normalized um so so they they um where was i there <laughs> I had so much in sorry I got so much in a, a flow there sometimes uh, yeah I, I would just go back and comment like it I mean <clears throat> their goal is world government basically and, and and I think what you're getting at is like how do they get there and I always reference again 1939 this idea for mm -hmm. Atlantic Union so unify Europe and, and North America into one supranational structure and then again as you say you they have I mean these are just uh, they, they have their scenarios and maybe they don't get them just the way they want them but you know then you have the Eurasian block um, and and these other regional blocks and is I, I found it fascinating that the original name of WEF was European management um forum and I think I, I like this article better than your first actually because I think you're really getting to the heart of, of everything. For me, uh, the, the striving for global governance, for girl, for, for world government, for you know, one world government is everything. Everything else surrounds that. You know, the pandemic, the Ukraine war, that's all in the background. Their goal is total global domination. And some people might know that, uh, might, might not know that my first website that I created some years ago was actually called Global Governance Archive. It quickly got tens of thousands of views per month, but I had to shut it down because I couldn't man manage a website while working uh, full time. And, you know, later geopolitics and empire was born. But, uh, you know, if you could just kind of steer us to, it seems the goal of uh, this Kissinger Harvard Schwab project is to get to this two thirds uh, global government as you described. Yep. No? 
So, so we're, we're, we're uh, let, let's say for Herman Khan and uh, Kissinger, we're right up there, but um, uh, to, to the time. Kissinger's your expert on thermonuclear disaster and foreign policy um, and Europe, um, so European security. And Herman Khan's your um, expert on thermonuclear disaster and the deterrence and the use of using it backwards and forwards. And they needed um, a really stable third guy, obviously, because John Kenneth Galbraith was involved. And John Kenneth Galbraith is one of the most interesting people you can read about in history i mean married to a woman who who lived with hitler's girlfriend um uh there's some there's some really fantastic studied land policy in 1938 under hitler and that was written in a book study land policy under hitler and at first i was like they don't mean actually like under hitler <laughs> like he was the professor no no and i just thought because i've literally taken it out of the book i'll 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 just put the 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 thing it's source in there and i'll let people decide what the book means because because i i think it just meant quite simply land policy under hitler's reign um it, and then as soon as the war starts uh he goes back over to germany um after america sorry this guy's a canadian uh american he's got american citizenship by this point he's been at harvard already as a professor and he's gone over as uh, still as a harvard professor so as an intellectual as an intelligence uh to germany just uh, coincidentally just before the war and then uh, he's he's uh Lachlan curry brings him into the roosevelt um uh war room really um straight away uh, as soon as the war starts and gets going and he works uh looking at economic strategy of the bombing and and etc for a while um and then when it comes down to 1945 he's supposed to go over to europe and do a strategic bombing survey or something along those lines again to look at the economic effect and how to bring europe back on track and get, get it back up and running again um but as soon as he lands he's um he's sent to uh to interview spear who's like the, was the head of war armaments uh, for the whole of the wehrmacht and he's one of the biggest people and interrogate one of the highest levels. So this guy's obviously intelligence. I mean, Galbraith is obviously intelligence. One of his first um, uh, students in uh, when he became a professor of Harvard um, at John Winthrop House uh, was um, Joseph P. Kennedy, followed a couple of years later by John F. Kennedy. And then Galbraith would serve with John F. Kennedy. He would help him get into to power. He would draft the speech for Johnson um, after Kennedy's assassination. He would uh, fight uh, publicly like he was a hero against Vietnam democracy now you know all of all, all of this sort of stuff um was 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 his like public face uh of of the the left you know that's how they used him he was a CFR member he was publishing the CFR journals from pretty early on um and he confirmed that he left the CFR in 1973 and who knows if you ever really leave the CFR I'm not sure if that's a thing that happened so so um Galbraith was well in amongst it he didn't like Johnson very much he had a rift supported Eugene McCarthy uh didn't like Robert Kennedy either um who said in one of his books he was like cocky and arrogant in style um but a lot of people would would suggest where he was very close to this establishment was John Kenneth Galbraith and he had had such an effect with uh JFK and you know that that yeah, maybe you don't want to be there the next time they do the same thing and then they did the same thing um 
but then by the end of uh, the 60s, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith is looking at economic policies in Europe. He's starting to align himself with Kissinger. They're doing the Mandeville Lectures, which is going around talking about the creation of foreign policy in um, Europe and the cool descent, as Galbraith um, talks about. This, this is a really interesting time where these three are coalescing all at the same time around the Schwab and the Schwab project, because by this point... Um, um, Herman Kahn and John Kenneth Galbraith have been introduced to Klaus Schwab by Henry Kissinger at Harvard. Now, uh, remember, Galbraith is teaching at Harvard as well, and Herman Kahn is obviously all about the place all of the time and wherever he needs to be. And at Harvard tends to be where intellectuals hang out, and he was like one of the most genius of intellectuals. The weird thing about Kahn, if you watch something from 1961, I've included one of uh, a video on Kahn inside the piece, and you watch it, and it's terrifying. It makes you go like, is this guy fuck? Is this guy on real world? Is this guy normal? What the hell is going on? You watch something from 15 years later and you're like, I completely understand this guy and I completely relate to this guy. And there's a reason behind that um, as well. So uh, Kissinger obviously wanted to create something in Europe. Galbraith was a policymaker. He was understand understood economic policy. He wanted to create something in Europe. And Khan knew everything about nuclear deterrence, and it was the height of the Cold War with that being used as a tool. So these were the men to help form Klaus Schwab. Now, at the same time, Klaus Schwab would uh, graduate in 1967 from Harvard at the same t the year that the Dorman report was coming out to reveal that the course he had been on was CIA funded. So people could have found this in history. Uh, this just comes from just constantly looking and looking and looking at all the different sources um, coming across and, and looking at things in different ways. And like I say, the international seminar, international kept going through the mind. Um, so so that, that's how I eventually found the CIA links to the actual um, course. So th this is all coalescing. At the same time, uh, Herman Kahn's working for the State Department. So he's moved in as an advisor between 1966 and 1968, all on this stuff and all on Europe and all on the direction and all on the future. And this is really important because Herman Kahn creates Klaus Schwab. Here, he creates Klaus Schwab's entire ideology. And I, I, never in um, a story have I come across something or an article have I come across something where they're so, wow, okay, that's it. There you go. But 1967, Herman Kahn writes a piece called The Year 2000. And the year 2000 was to predict, uh, and a massive working group um, to, to predict what was going to happen in technology and by 2000 and all of the potential uh, changes. And they, of course, they predicted way too much. You know, they predicted way, but everything was right. Now, I don't think you read the whole list and there's loads of them. It's, um, it, it, it's one of the links, one of the sourced within the article. Um, it's really near the bottom. It's one of the last links. I think it's the second from last. It's an amazing list of uh things that weren't ha we haven't got to yet but when you read them you realize we're just around the corner from it 
and a list of a load of list of things we have got to and were completely right. And Herman Cannon's predictions, he was like a prophet. He was truly amazing. The way they did it and the way he did it in 1967, he was able to map out our entire technological advancement into the future, not completely accurate to when we'd be achieve it, but completely accurate to what we would achieve, which gives people a goal and a motivation and something to, to, to work towards. And in the growing technocracy movement, which is a weird type of movement because it doesn't it come from an ideology, it comes from like a, a group, like basically a, ga a gaggle of guys who were all like, oh, let's take over the world with technology. And then it all failed and fell apart. And then it's changed and it's more emerged and it's morphed. But we all know what it is. It's about getting to that technology as quickly as possible. But what Klaus Schwab does is try and introduce this technology as quickly as possible and help to uh, get other people to produce that. But what Herman Kahn says, even in his uh, initial um, year 2000, is, listen, there's so many dangers here, so many. Um, the, it's off the scale. We've worked out all of these, we've mapped out all these different things, and we are in trouble. We are in real trouble if we don't get this right. Now, by the time he, at the time he was producing this, he was always also alongside producing something which I've also included in the article. It was extremely interested, interesting. It's the ancillary uh, document um, that they, they, I don't think they produced publicly at the time, um, but it should basically showed how we're going to go to this technological future for that technological future. And to arrive there, we need to do certain things in our society, include create go um, governorship from a young elite um, that will be able to share our values to wider society. So you see how that's kind of like, you know, I, I think I've worded that well enough to, to be able to describe how they see it and how we see it, of course, um, because, what they were doing was um, looking at the fact that li listen, we've got all of these um, potentials in the future, but unless we really, really take a leadership group and focus in on them and really uh, help them to be able to instill our values into other people, we're not going to be able to get any of this done. And we're going to end up in the situation kind of we're in, where we have we've got a load that are unticked yet, a load of unticked on the list that we haven't done yet. In in the list that I've added is a great guys uh, done it up, up, and they're color coded. So the red ones are far away, and the light red are closer, and the green ones are. It's very interesting to to even scan through and just look at the different ones that we haven't because we're right round the corner from a lot of this. Now, I, I would I would just add about that like. I mean, you're talking about young global leaders, there's global shapers, but it's not just that. I mean, I've worked in, in at university academia and it, it's, it works really so well. I mean, if, if we leave just aside the young global um, leaders program, just all of in every country, not just US, European uni uh, top universities, American here in Mexico, it's the same liberal globalist um, perspective and all of the youth that go through these undergraduate and graduate programs, basically the by far majority, like 70, 80, 90% come out programmed um, in this way of, of thinking that you've described. I've seen it with my own eyes, like as a, yeah. as a teacher. And it's, it's just, and these are the people that then go fill in the, the international organization positions, UN, really interesting. NGO, government positions. And 
and then you really know, interesting often, yeah. in these in these two documents in the ancillary document i think he covers it a little bit in um in uh the year 2000 document um but they talk about the fact that uh the universities, the way we look at universities has to change, the way they look at universities has to change because we're already going to choose a leadership group from a separate group. So they're obviously going to be the best. They're obviously already going to be the professors. They're obviously going to be already in the positions of proving themselves in some way, shape or form, or just got in through family, uh, from through, through lineage or et cetera. So, so they already um, know that what, they see then universities as being is a way to um, train everybody on the basics, just like a school, basically, um, but filter out people who they can and can't have in society. A lot of the documents um, talk about class. They talk about um, the problem with the growing, uh, the the rate, the Negro population is growing. It talks a lot about a lot of stuff about uh identity and class uh in a lot of these documents and you can tell is um uh a, a, a definite class of people who are all the people who are writing these documents that they're all on the same boat and it often feels detached it's really important to read some of this stuff because it maps out where we are now <laughs> really really well but it maps out in their words and their words are not nice on loads of occasions it makes you feel Mm. And they miss out certain words that may that completely change your sentence to be something really sinister. And you think, did they just miss out a word, or is it that sinister? You know, it's really they've carefully worded documents. A bit weird. Like, like I say, this was this was inspiring to Schwab. Obviously, uh, Herman Kahn um, and Galbraith would go and help him set up the World Economic Forum. So they would come over before the first World Economic Forum or European Management Symposium. Very interesting. You sneak into Europe. You want to have a globalist organization, but you don't want to make it globalist straight away. Otherwise, you give your game away. You sneak it in nicely. You don't call it anything too suspicious. European Management Symposium. It's all about managers. Just corporations just turning up no one else apart from the world leaders that will come later um it was about two years it was symposium then it changed to forum and then i think it was the 90s or something that it changed to world economic forum um so it's quite quite late so that's the point where they come out of their 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 bubble a lot at this time kissinger at the same time galbraith and khan are, are going over to help schwab persuade european partners to become part of this uh world economic forum eventually world economic forum uh project that was the, the, the that was obviously really hard it sounded like schwab had a lot of difficulty with what said and he had to bring over galbraith and khan before to convince people and then galbraith became the keynote speaker um and herman khan was up there on the top table watching on the first ever will uh will uh european management suppose him 1971 the first ever davos um that that is a moment where they drew in a lot of attention but understand they got the foreign policy maker and thermonuclear guy in the background watching from a distance of course because he's busy uh, create, uh working under nixon at this point as an advisor kissinger i'm talking about now um he's busy working as a vi- uh, advisor but they're about to switch their tone in 1971 1972 to be the year of europe this is all about europe now we're going to support the ec we're going to do this we're going to throw 
everything at Europe, 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 Europe. So they create this European management symposium, suddenly turn their entire power, uh, uh, the, the, the projection of their power towards Europe. Um, like now we talk, oh, they, 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 they're turning it towards the Pacific, etc. But then it was just completely towards Europe, dominate it, stick it in the natural place where you know no one's ever gonna no one's ever gonna get to the truth of switzerland the place where which gets away with everything it wants to or allows other people and other countries to get away with whatever it wants to which is more likely uh, a better description of it and uh and and um so kissinger's uh creating this idea of europe um it, it being the most important thing galbraith and kind of helping him set up this project and it's glorious success then 1972 it slumps and then 1973 schwab is desperate to find something to spark it up again and make it good and again i i don't mean to this is really it, it was a really strange thing because both articles ended up on the limit to growth ended up on on um the aurelio pecci speech he was a keynote speaker and uh, head of the club of rome um in 1973's world economic forum in january 1973 and he would make a speech that would be malthusian and would say that we we need to use climate change um and make people think the environment is going to go really cataclysmic um so we can get through an agenda of population reduction um and get rid of these uh basically the old useless eaters type thing you know that that, that old chestnut well he was this was a really important thing for schwab to put him right center stage to get in the crowd and i think that's what it was it was to get people baying for something interesting or controversial and it worked really well but in doing that um herman khan I think was devastated and distanced himself massively from the project and it changed his entire, it changed the way he was because from the moment or that moment until his death, um, he was arguing against the club of Rome, arguing against Malthusian ideas. He would instantly go into research and writing a document, which would be called the next 200 years. I believe it, that one was called, um, and would look at, at the future and would say that resources and stuff hold no barrier to what humans can create and what humans can do, you know, and wrote really optimistic. Now, a version of what humanity could become and um, and and at the same time you know when we look at what schwab's doing he's not really entering into that that realm that the more optimistic realm he's entering into the other realm he's trying to do the tick sheet 1967 still and this is really interesting because the world and the dynamics we see today the problems we got in the ukraine nuclear threat i mean they're talking when i hear them talking after doing research for this article and i don't want to be i don't want to be above myself and say i always knew this because as a journalist as a researcher you research things and you learn loads of things so like a couple of years ago i had no idea about um how global control worked and now i understand the basics of it i don't claim to understand way too much but these guys are really you know they've pushed an agenda in a way that has allowed them to take control of europe uh in social policies in economic policies through the threat ever uh, ever present threat of war they want um us to uh to fear that bomb dropping that they know will never drop 
That's the worst thing. So when I listen to them now, I'm listening to the 1950s. I'm listening to people who are, who are talking like puppets in the 1950s and it's 2022. We should know better. There ain't going to be no bomb dropping. And if they do, it's because they've lost all of the rest of their game and they're at the end of the game. There is no way that someone presses that button and a bomb drops and all of the rest of the bombs go off. That's the idea of Dr. Strangelove, you know. That's the, the fantasy they wanted to build up in your head, the doomsday advice, device. Anybody presses a nuke and the whole world blows up because that was the worst possible scenario for the idea of nuclear deterrence and nuclear war and that's what they want to force on us all the time and they've gone back to it and it's so depressing because now even i mean you look at the war this uh, supposed war that's happening and and the best evidence you can get of what they're saying is they're, 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 look there's a bomb going off 20 miles over there and there's civilians there's loads of civilians they're all over there, you know. They're all over. And these people are standing in the field with a couple of people getting on a bus and a couple of, of army trucks around, and there's nothing, nothing visible all around. It's not, it doesn't even look like a big city. It looks like they, they, sometimes it's like a city and it's like really far in the distance. There's like an explosion that's over way far over the other city. And they put the camera on it. And they're, oh my God, look there. And there's definitely civilians and they're definitely dying. And it's become such the facade has become so. Oh, it, it's 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 terrible to it's it's like seeing the movies take over, and I think that's part of the 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 thing is that they they can't they no longer can keep control of people through policies and etc. Um, without showing their their true face, so they've got to try other ways, and it, that's why we're seeing a ramping up of rhetoric, ramping up of weird videos that are unverified and then turns out to be all all of the time it doesn't matter what they do now they've just got to keep flooding it because their things falling apart their agenda is falling apart and it's falling apart because um, however many cfr members you have in positions of power people like me love their country yeah i don't mean that in like I love my people and only my people are the best because that would be a massive jump to make. I'm saying I come from Wales. It's a diverse country with five different ethnic groups that don't even know they're five different ethnic groups. They think they're one ethnic group. I come from a place with a dragon on the flag, ancient fantasies, poems, songs, beauty all around. I come from a land of song. I come from a land of Real, 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 real funny people. People who will make you laugh all day, all night, will welcoming you into their home with open arms and will be some of the kindest people. I come from a place which, when I go across the border, is slightly different from over there. And when I go across a couple of borders, it's completely different. And that's why I like to also go across a couple of borders. I don't want to homogenize every culture. I don't want to homogenize what we love to do so that the CFR can be in control of us as some sort of like gloopy glob of cultureless nothing. You know, uh, we are losing things and it is come to a point where you have to accept that, you know, this natural 
nationalism thing all of the time. They, they, they always show you the extremes of nationalism because there's another side to nationalism. The side like tonight, after I do this interview, I'm going to go and watch Wales play rugby in the Six Nations against France. And I'm really excited. And you know what? I may even sound like I'm a little racist at times to the outsider. I'll be going, you bloody French bastards. I'll be saying all sorts of things because you know what? It's uh, the French will be doing the same as well in their home and they will be loving it. And when we join together, and this is something you learn from being from Cardiff, the, one of the homes of rugby where you could really find uh, fans from all around the world, they come together and it's not like football where they fight at all. There's no fighting ever, ever with rugby. They just join together, they sing together, they love and live together, they have fun together, and it becomes this expression of my culture has something cultural that you can get in thing, but we're still different. We can share, we can, you know, as soon as they start making us think that that we have to be part of a bigger, wider globe and we have to let things go and we have to have um, McDonald's on every corner or etc., we, we we are losing sight of who we are completely. And what we love the most, because what we love the most, when we actually take away all of the politics, take away all of the drama, take away all of the created crap that they, what we love is to stand next to someone who we can appreciate to a certain level, our, both our cultural uh, differences and similarities, and we play off that. Whether whichever country you're from or whichever country you're in, that's nearly everything that we do to communicate. And I've known this from working with uh, hotel in hotels over a 20 year period, working with loads of people from all over the world and being as welcoming as I can to them and watching as they open up and all you see is another human. You don't see the cultural differences anymore. As soon as someone realizes you're willing to open up your heart and your life to someone, then you see a person and then you can share your cultures together and you can share all the interesting things. And trust me, that is a joy when you've got lots of friends from all different countries um, and you go around to someone's house and you have a food, you're going to have a wild time on loads of occasions because you get to try loads of new things. And that's what good loads of new things they want to take away the loads of new things they want to place them with loads of old gray things things that we would describe as orwellian things as we would describe as dystopian as ugh. um that's that's why they want to turn good food to ash in our mouth because it's cheaper for them and let me just read a uh, on that note uh, a quote i had prepared uh, where you say quote i believe that there is a very obvious reason for our return to cold war rhetoric it's a very obvious sign that Schwab and his backers are out of ideas i believe that the wef is reaching its maximum maximum level of expansion before its inevitable collapse because eventually those people who love their own national identities will stand up against the immediate threat to their specific cultures and they will fight back against the, the globalist rule end quote so you know on one hand they've advanced much in their globalist project you say it's falling apart and now we're seeing this ukraine situation which also i i admit that it's one of the strangest wars that we've seen in recent years because there's very little footage like um mm -hmm. you know it's it's, it's kind of re really strange but you know th there is this threat of a nuclear escalation with the east maybe maybe not so you know where do things go from here are they just going to double down on this failing globalist project um will they be able to come back from the brink and and, and have success or it's falling apart and, and and now what happens what do you think 
Well, I, I think there's there's a couple of things that happen is as they get more desperate to try and adopt more people to their ideology and their way of thinking and to those people's lives then um, fitting into what their agenda would be, they're going to find more and more pushback. They're at the edge of it. And that's that's going to be one thing. What, what I've seen as a difference, um, when I was first researching Schwab in 2020 to now is grand is grand uh, honestly people uh, have uh, really opened their eyes to what the agenda is and because of it more and more evidence coming out all of the time and we've got to keep doing that because basically they've got a backlog of questions to answer and that that happens with all organizations all societies that eventually have got to go defunct they've got to end themselves um that you can only get a certain way and i really do think that schwab is kind of like he believed he he I don't I don't think he necessarily believed he could do it. He just kept doing it and it kept working because there's no um uh, he was uh, giving the greedy elites something to look forward to and greedy elites that's all they ever want something to look forward to and believe they're on the cusp of and world power and all of this. Um I don't think they can deliver that at all. I think that they're going to hit a point where people say, no way, we want all of the, the, your people out of our parliaments. We're going to see that at some point in one country. We're going to see one country that bans World Economic Forum group, something along those lines. If we see that in one country, we can expect to see that in other countries, but we could also expect to see different versions of it, both negative and positive. And what we really got to hope for eventually, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but that we ban uh, organizations, terrorist organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, because there is no, there is no organization that fits um as in britain chatham house um uh, no uh, type of organization that deserves to be called a terrorist more than those guys um they have uh, terrorized and controlled our societies for a long time and it's amazing uh, the more you look into it the more you see and the more it's obvious you know it's so easy how they've done it as well because while we're all crapping ourselves of whether they're gonna launch a bomb over here or launch a bomb over here and whether we're gonna have global war or not uh they they're enacting. They're enacting. So I think uh, uh, what we've got to do is realize what happens if someone launches a bomb. We're all, we're all in, in crap. So we can't keep focusing on that. It's, it's not productive. If that's going to happen, it's going to happen. Someone else is going to do it. Really, let's just get on. Let's get on to the next level. So let's ignore their little games with, oh, will we or won't we press the button that they've been playing for the over uh, 50, 60 years. Um, and let's see okay, we need to, we do need to make other structures, uh, uh, but we need to have some big moments in history. We need to have some visible moments and we need to have, um, uh, and I would say this is a strong word, purging um, of World Economic Forum associates. Um, and then we need a wider conversation. Um, no, we don't need a wider, we need wider action. This is where I hate when whenever you say you need a wider conversation, what happens is that they take over the conversation. Um, so we need to find a way. We need action to mean that we become the people who are making up the conversation and not them. And this is a problem is that they keep us arguing amongst each other. So we're not having that conversation. And I'm starting to see people and hear people having that conversation. I think it is developing forward. What they're doing is trying to get an agenda as, uh, that was envisioned in the 60s 
um, out as quickly as possible. It's a day outdated, it's unethical, it's immoral, it's going to hurt lots of people, and it's going to have people fight back. It has to have people fight back. We need one country. Something will spark, something will happen, a little piece of information maybe will come out, and it will cause them to be in a lot of trouble. And if we if we can focus on the people who have been working for these guys all along, a lot of people in a lot of our countries will realize how much of our system is a sham. And then maybe we can go on to talk and take action on a different type of democracy that works for people and doesn't belittle large uh, po- uh, impoverished groups that, you know, a different type of something that, that fits in with a technological future, but has the consent of human beings behind it, who are going to be the ones who are affected by it. Uh, th- this is the, the power dynamic has to change from those little guys, those guys at the top. Um, we have to ignore the, the, the threats that they're going to bomb our lives and they're going to destroy us because worrying about that ain't going to do any good. Um, what we've got to do is work out how, how to change the dynamics so that they're not, they're not the ones setting the conversation at all anymore and that they're held to account for everything they've done. Everything they've done. Now, that's the biggest risk because that's the biggest risk that someone will say, well, I am going to press the button then. But, you know, these systems have been made up on purpose to stop that happening because, you know, it really is... It's hard to find someone, uh, a collection of like five people on Earth all at the same time who will want to launch a nuclear weapon and start World War Three. That would be nuts. I mean, it's just probability is off the scale and that's what they worked out and that's what the processes are built on. They're built on so-and-so's got to give an order, so-and-so's got to read a code, so-and-so's got to press a button, it goes down a level, so-and-so's got to do this, that, the other, the other. Launch, you've got like five, six men chain, a chain going on the, these guys, when if if I'm wrong, oh, I'm really sorry. Ma, <laughs> don't listen to me anymore. Oh, you won't anyway. <laughs> I mean, I, I I know I know this is a, a kind of one sided argument to take because you can't do anything about the worst that could happen. And I think what this is, is a way, um, I think what we saw in Crimea before, this is just another thing along, along those lines. It, it feels more sensitive than making more of it, but it's just like, oh, that bit is probably ours anyway. We're just going to take it back. And all the people there are like, yeah, that's fine. We're Russians. You know, that's really what we're seeing. So they, 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 they just do a little grab here and there, make a big thing out of it, uh, cause loads of tension. There's loads of discussions, goes back to 1950s and stops people approaching the future and looking at the future and seeing what they're doing. And it's what they've been doing all the time. They've been able to create all of these policy institutes and these think tanks and all of these things to enchain us because we're too busy worrying whether they're going to kill us. And that is a real hostage situation. That's where we are as a society. We've been for a long time. Since since probably before World War II, we've been a a constant hostage situation with the people who are in power. And we've got to flip that paradigm. We've got to to hold them hostage. And and they all know there's a possibility that someone's going to come out with an idea that that makes that plausible and possible. Um, But the only idea that I can think of at the moment is just uncover everything, show people um, the main uh, functions of a power group or um, a 
a selection of people who have done things in society to make something happen, um, explain in detail situations as best as you can in context to everything. And also, I always say this, be kind and talking with people because talking with people, I find that I don't force my, I, I used to, something I, I was guilty of is forcing my views on other people. Um, did it a lot through my life, uh, usually with people that I knew I could because they were my friends. And I was like, no, I think this and that's the way and blah, blah, blah. But we all grow up. And you're not going to change any minds by arguing with someone about same point over and over again you can't get over. And when you talk about general things and talk about other stuff in life, it comes around to things. It relates to other things. You don't need to force it in there. You don't need to force it in there. But everybody needs to have conversations with people because you all got to, everybody's got to tell people, don't worry about the bombs dropping. These guys already know they're not going to drop. These guys already know it. They've known it for, for over 50 years and they're using the same old tricks again and people are falling for it. And it's same with the virus. Use same old tricks again. People are falling for it. And it'll be the same with the next thing. Same old tricks again. People will fall for it. I know there's something coming up in Britain, which is going to be heavy um, coming up, but I, I'll talk about that soon enough. But yeah, that's, that's, they, they always find something to distract us. Always. I would just add a, as an example of pushback, uh, what you were talking about, whether it's one country, Mexico just this week sent an official communique. People are criticizing the AMLO government, but they basically told the EU to buzz off. They were telling the EU, you are not the world government. It literally says, that, you know, EU, stop bossing us around. You are not mm -hmm. the world uh, government. And so that's just one tiny example. Um, I guess the, just the last thing that's on, always on my mind is the russia china factor that's that's always lingering uh, and it's fluid for me like i i haven't made a uh, put my foot down on either uh, position you know it feels like there is both things can be true at the same time where they have been penetrated by these networks but also that there is this struggle for this national um uh, identity that we see in Russia and China. Whitney did a great episode with Ian Smith recently on the multipolar world, uh, where they say it's basically the road to world government that, that includes Russia uh, and China. But for me, it's still unclear. Um, I had a past guest called Miklos Lukas, Peruvian professor, who pointed out how in the 1990s, Bill Gates and Microsoft penetrated Beijing. Uh, and in Russia, we've seen, again, you know, Sparebank and other corporate actors make inroads. But I still think things are, are fluid. And as you say, it's it's like this struggle. I mean, what are your final thoughts on Russia and China? Well, right. Well, first with Russia, I mean, I, I, I think Russia plays the game on the board. So they use they they're like a chess player that uses crazy moves all over the place to really flip the game around. And you spent 10 hours thinking about a move and then they've gone and done something completely crazy and they go on to win the game. You know, Russia are really good at, at planning ahead and doing things in response to other things, you know? So it's kind of like a game backwards and forwards means it's consensual. They both know the rules, both sides, the West and Russia. So that just goes backwards and forwards. It's a beautiful, it really is the Orwellian idea, the East and West and the, you know, and the, the big power coming from the side. It's a beautiful dance that's been going on for many years. Um, uh, and, and a load of it's fake. And there's a load of people that get stuck in the middle of it, of course, um, usually in his, history ukrainians um between that dance because of where they they are um geographically when it comes down to china 
China's an interesting one. And I, I, I mean, I, I think people really, we've had such a bad, um, idea of what China is, um, because of some of their actions for the past hundred years, because of some of the things they've done, because of who, um, some of the ideas that have come out of there, but what people don't really, really understand about China, um, and you'd have to spend a lot of time learning about China to understand this is that it's a thinking man's place. You know, it's not a stupid place. It's not full of stupid, useless people walking around and they're all being ordered around by their governments. Um, China has a history of rich, deep philosophy of, um, of, of a culture, a, a various cultures is such a big place in itself. Um, really, really great minds have come and great thinking have come from China. And I think eventually that will win over. And I think that's partially what they're doing now. They're trying to find their way to how they can deal with this capitalist world by introducing it. And it's come out in this weird sort of like social credit system that I think most of the Chinese people don't like very much. And it's kind of like, well, this is what the the future's been told we should be like so let's get there first and they've got there and they realize well it takes a lot of the buzz out of it and i don't think it'll last long in china i i i love chinese cinema and the chinese and i'm not talking about just hong kong cinema i'm talking about chinese cinema um the the, the completely mind-blowing imagination of the chinese people and the history is thousands of thousands of thousands of years. The things we were do, discovering in the 1700s, they'd already well discovered 2000 years before. They're really clever people. I don't think they'll, I, I, I don't think they'll continue. I think they keep having like this, these like sort of glorious revolutions, these, these changeovers, these new, new eras. And I think that'll continue with China. And I think we'll get up to one soon. Cause I, I don't think it'll be like a revolution. I think people will just be fed up of, a boring system i i think the people of china have just got much more lively they're much more lively they're much more dynamic um and i think their system is made to be boring and i think lots of people in china will get fed up of it so i think china will always change um to, to at the moment will be changing to uh, how it can work with the outside world but i think eventually i'll give up doing that and find its place on its own because i don't think it'll ever fit in with the rest of it I, I, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I mean that in the most beautiful way. Um, it's very much his own place. And each, I think China eventually will be split into other countries. I think the, there, there will be sections of China that won't be able to hold together if we're looking even in the longer term. So uh, multipolar world, but the polars are, uh, <laughs> are moving apart. The poles are moving apart, you know? Multi, multi-polar world. A, a dose of optimism from Johnny uh, Vedmore, I hope. Your forecasts pan out in this more optimistic um, view of things where these big globalist uh, projects fracture and, and fall apart. Uh, any final thought for us then? Well, I have to say, it's just like, keep on the fighting. There's been a change. There's been a change in understanding in people um, and, and things like this, you know, 
it's so sad. It's so sad to see how people's uh, simple minds, the simple little mind underneath our main mind, just like flips over and like a, a dog and just obeys as soon as we got a little bit of fear of impending doom. And it's just conceptual impending doom. We've really got to stop being af- afraid of concepts uh, and be more afraid of reality. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I, I don't know how we go on, but a, a lot of it has got to be talked with people and basically making sure that there's uh, people you know have enough knowledge that they can actually um, argue against some of this stuff and and make more people kind of wake up so we can say I love being Welsh or Spanish or Argentinian or American I love being uh, from Texas or I love being from South Wales or I love being from this we can love being who we are and that's really what they want to take us away from us because remember their ideology is about putting another character another set of shared values upon us and that's not natural that's not natural we are who we are um and we've got to embrace our own characters our own individual reality our own um communities our own cities our own countries our own continents and yeah you you don't want to be a global citizen no uh i'm i'm happy being uh, a mexican myself um <laughs> and all right um as usual all of johnny's links and websites will be in the description uh so bookmark his sites follow him on social media and sign up for you know any of his newsletters and consider supporting him hopefully mi5 mi6 cia or the nato stay behind network doesn't get get to you johnny uh stay safe nah, it'll be okay it'll be okay i'm sure it'll be fine thanks for having me man I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.